Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the latest government deadlines to slide could be zero trust and China's artificial intelligence gains coming with American chips. It's Tuesday, July 12th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The government's already seeing results from the first group of U.S. Digital Corps members, according to one of the program's overseers. The director of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration, Dave Zvenich, tells FedScoop 13 agencies have accepted more than 40 fellows in the program. Zvenich says the Corps will start recruiting its next cohort next month. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a new leader in its Clinical Informatics and Data Management Office. Candace Oliva spent most of her career at VA. Her office coordinates VA's relationships with external groups to provide better care to veterans. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The federal government's zero-trust effort still needs money and time to make an impact on security. That's why the effort is still in the starting blocks, according to new research from Scoop News Group. Wyatt Cash is Senior Vice President of Content Strategy at Scoop News Group, FedScoop's parent company. Wyatt, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Still in the starting blocks sounds maybe like a bad thing, but given the timeline that the zero-trust strategy is on in government, might not be such a bad thing. How do I interpret the fact that the zero trust effort still in the starting blocks, Wyatt? Welcome. Thank you for having me. And absolutely, um, uh, number one, the study really confirms um, a wide range of where agencies are at. Some are fairly advanced in their modernization. Some are still getting there. And some are really just beginning to really get up to speed with their cloud migrations. and. Overall, when it comes to establishing their security uh, and ultimately the foundations for zero trust, they still have to really finish a lot of that foundational work. How interlocked is cloud's role in a zero trust journey, Wyatt? Um, It's um, an important variable. Um, Certainly, uh, zero trust could be established completely on-prem. The challenge is that on-prem technology, as we all know, is uh, uh, much of it very old. Um, There's a lot of silos. And if you want zero trust to function properly, then you really need to have the systems in place to, uh, number one, have visibility and access to the activity going on on the networks. Number two, to really know who the users are, and that requires a a properly functioning centralized uh, identity and access management system. Uh, Number three, it really also requires some capability to know the devices and applications that are also accessing, and then have the real-time analytic ability to say, hey, this user um, 
you know, qualifies right now to get access, but uh, something's changed and we should maybe disconnect them. All of that requires um, the power of the cloud. Uh, so having cloud makes it uh, not only easier, but provides really that scalability that's also important given the size of federal agencies. So security is of the essence, obviously, with Zero Trust's whole point of it, but time is of the essence as well, it sounds like. You can't have well, a user just sitting there unproductive while uh, some on-prem system churns and churns and churns to try to figure out whether this person is who they say they are. That's right. And there's a lot in place that's functioning now. Let's be clear. Uh, we found the study, for example, indicating approximately two thirds of the federal IT uh, leaders we surveyed, and all of them were pre-qualified. They had to be decision makers in federal agencies or they didn't take the survey. Uh, we spoke to about 177 of them or surveyed them. So we have a good cross-section. So about two-thirds of that group uh, indicated that they felt that their security systems were on par with what other agencies have. And that's pretty robust given FISMA and all the other security controls. That said, um, you know, a lot of that isn't fully operational across all of their agencies. Um, and a lot of it still needs to be modernized. So what, what that means at the end of the day is that the uh, uh, people need to really um, continue laying those right foundations and be able to um, really continue to lay in the new requirements from OMB, which is given agencies until the end of fiscal year 2024 to have the so-called five pillars of zero trust in place. All right. One of the things I learned in Washington very early on many, many years ago was even when they say it's not about the money, it's about the money. And you write uh, one in four IT decision makers at civilian agencies and one in five in defense and intelligence agencies predict zero trust is going to take up as much as 10 percent or more of their annual IT budgets in the next two fiscal years. And I would imagine then this is my thought process, not research. It'll be more than that moving forward. How do we how do we see that manifesting itself? And what do you think we should do with that number and that knowledge, Wyatt? Well, you have that absolutely right. And and I think there's some cause for alarm. Essentially, we have a very solid plan and a unified sort of approach that has a lot of support from NIST and CISA and so forth. That said, it does require resources. And as usual, uh, executive orders and OMB mandates are good forcing agents. But without the effect of law, without some specific funding from Congress, you're, you're basically leaving agencies back to the funds to do this. And we all know what happens with that. Um, and so I think that the concern should be, um, even if there is some more resources coming uh, from the federal um, executive order and, and, and agencies on point to fund these things, um, it still will require a good analytical assessment of what needs to happen, what projects may have to be put on hold. Uh, and at the end of the day, um, what this study really points out to is that the IT leaders are saying, we, we have our marching orders um, and we know aggressive uh, uh, deadlines can 
move people. But without the full resources, this is going to take a lot longer to implement. And then that means our security posture and the whole concept of zero trust is being stretched out over multiple years. And the question is, can we really afford that given how advanced the adversaries are becoming? All right. Given all of that put together, then I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you, Wyatt, to read that 46 percent of your respondents are skeptical or not confident about meeting the deadline that OMB has set for uh, zero trust implementation. So what I appreciate about that number is I think we got a very candid set of responses from federal IT leaders, and that should be a bit of a a wake-up call that it's, you know, hopeful thinking is not enough to get us there. Wyatt Cash, great insight as always. It's terrific to talk to you and have you on the program. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Francis. Always a pleasure to be with you. You can read more about the Zero Trust research Wyatt talked about in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming tomorrow, the latest episode of the newest podcast from the Scoop News Group podcast network, the Defense Scoop podcast. This week's feature guest is Melissa Weiss, Chief Operations Officer in the Vulnerability Disclosure Program at the DOD Cyber Crimes Center. If defense and national security issues matter to you, you can get the Defense Scoop podcast every Wednesday at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The goal of the Defense Department's new Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office is to keep the United States ahead of peer competitors like China in digital and AI technology. United States technology, though, is powering that peer competitor's progress. Bob Work is president and owner of Teamwork LLC. He's former Deputy Secretary of Defense and former co-chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Bob, welcome. It's great to talk to you. I refer to work done by the Center for Security and Emerging Technology that cites open source material as demonstrating that China is using American chips in particular in their AI technology as opposed to Chinese chips in their AI technology. What's the significance or potential problem with that in your view, if any? Welcome. Uh, it's great to be here, Francis. Thank you for having me. This is a big, big problem in a long-term technical competition with the People's Republic of China, uh, which is intent on knocking the U.S. off as the leading innovator of technology in the world. And they have a lot of different plans to do that. Uh, central to their plan is to get ahead in artificial intelligence, as you said. They have a national plan to do so. And essentially, they would like to surpass the United States in AI technology and be the world's leading AI superpower, if uh, I can use those words, by 2030. And in the National Security Commission on AI, we described AI as being a stack of six things. Data, uh, which is used to power machine learning uh, chips. Algorithms, which are the you know, mathematical and uh, formulas which allow you to use the data. Uh, applications, which are the specific things you want to accomplish, uh, like maybe it is computer vision or facial recognition or you know, trying to make predictions about what people might buy. Uh, talent, which you need to do, uh, put all of this together and integration. And then there's hardware. And the key part of hardware is chips. 
microchips, semiconductors. They're essentially the size of a fingernail, and there are billions of transistors on this, and they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the smaller they get, the faster you can go and the less power you need. So uh, the typical chip that goes into your automobile, Francis, is a seven nanometer chip. Uh, and that's about the size of a red blood cell to give you a sense of how small it is. And uh, leading technology is taking us further and further and further, uh, I mean, smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, right now, uh, Intel is going to a five nanometer chip, which is the size of 10 large atoms. It's actually less than the wavelength of light. So if you're going to continue to build these things and get them smaller, you can't use visual light anymore or, or a, a visible light. You have to go to extreme ultraviolet light, like x-rays. Uh, and to do that, you need lasers. So it's uh, just to give you an example, it costs 120 million to make a machine that can make a five nanometer chip. And it weighs 180 tons. And you need a whole bunch of those uh, if you're going to make a bunch of chips. So making what is called a fabrication facility or a fab is billions and billions of dollars. Now, what does this all mean to us as the US? Right now, Francis, we outsource 90% of all our semiconductors. And the majority of those come from East Asia. And the majority of those come from Taiwan, uh, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TMSC. They're the world leader. So like we said in the NSCAI, we're about 110 nautical miles, which is the distance from Taipei to China, from being two generations ahead in chips, because we get our chips from TSMC, and if China seized Taiwan and took over those fabrication facilities and we did not have access to them, we'd go from being two generations ahead to being two generations behind. Why two generations? Is, is that the amount of time that it would take for us to replicate those facilities in a friendlier environment to be able to catch up? I'm not really certain if it would uh, directly go to the time, but generations is like going from a seven nanometer chip to a five nanometer chip, to a three nanometer chip. Uh, and TSMC has actually demonstrated a one nanometer chip. Pretty soon you're gonna get to nanotechnology. It's just kind of crazy. Uh, IBM has a two nanometer chip, which is smaller than a strand of DNA. So it's just amazing. Now the United States has no fabrication facilities in the uh, continental United States uh, for these advanced chips. We still are pretty good at making the older chips, like the seven nanometer chips for everything. But for everybody listening on the podcast, they might remember we went through a period of time where cars were, new cars were very scarce. And the reason why is there weren't any, enough microchips to put in the cars. Uh, and it caused a global shortage of automobiles. And now you can just multiply that problem for cars to 
not having chips for ballistic missiles or not having chips for your advanced um, command and control systems. And China is trying its very best to kind of corner the market in this. Between 1990 and 2020, Francis, China built 32 fabrication facilities for chips. In the entire rest of the world, only 24 were made and none of them in the United States. So what this article was saying, what CSET was saying is, look, we still lead in the design of chips. Uh, Intel, NVIDIA, uh, US companies like that. We are very, very good at designing the chips, but we don't have the manufacturing facilities to make the chips. And uh, the Chinese are buying everything they can from the US, the chips they can from the US, while they are building their own domestic fabrication facilities. Uh, and over time, if they corner the market, and you know, I'll just use the uh, oil embargo that we faced in the 70s. Uh, if the Chinese corner the market uh, and just did a uh, chip embargo on the United States and the West, they could really set us behind economically because the chips are used in everything now. Televisions, you know, toasters, refrigerators, TVs, uh, iPads, smartphones, uh, and all of our advanced military equipment. There are two factors then, it sounds like, that are critical for people who listen to this program to think about. One is, what is the intersection between what the Defense Department and the, the U.S. government writ large can do to uh, either prevent or slow the flow of U.S. or U.S.-designed chips to its probably most challenging peer adversary? And the other is, what do we do to make up the capacity uh, of the potential supply chain disruption that could happen in the scenario that you just outlined? Is that really the bottom line here? Are those the two main things that people need to think about? Yes. And uh, should the United States have its own domestic manufacturing capability? To do it, it's going to require government help and incentives. Uh, you know, building a fabrication facility might cost $40 billion. And it's going to be hard for the venture capital community and for uh, American companies to come up with that size of a capital investment. So the U.S. is going to have to think about uh, can it incentivize through tax credits and things like that. Uh, right now, with the incentives that we have, uh, a manufacturer in the United States might get a 10 to 15% uh, advantage in tax credits and things like that. Companies like South Korea and, and Taiwan, which lead the world in these type ships, they give like 30% from the government. Now that gets us into all sorts of questions on industrial policy and gets everybody all excited. Uh, but we need to look down the road and say, we don't need to help the Chinese get ahead of us. You know, it's hard, it's hard enough keeping up with them uh, given the amount of money that they are spending and uh, how they're trying to corner the market. Um, you know, they, you need to build these chips. You need three, you need silicon, which is widely available, tungsten and gallium. That's what, these are some of the uh, things that are used to make these chips. 
China produces 70% or more of all three of these. You know, they already have, they're building 32 fabs uh, and they are spending a lot of money on research. So for us, what we have to do is we need to really make sure we stay ahead of the chip design, make sure that, you know, we are making the best design chips in the world. Um, and we have to work with our partners, South Korea and the Netherlands. They are the leading manufacturers of these chips. Luckily, they're our allies. We would like to make sure that they do not sell the equipment to build these chips to China. Um, and we need to think about ways to incentivize uh, building uh, these fabs in the U.S. There is a CHIPS Act that was signed in the 21 National Defense Authorization Act, and it set aside $50 billion to help us do this. But everyone in the private community is saying, okay, you're telling us this $50 billion is there, but how do we get to it? How are you going to uh, provide it for us? It's not giving us any benefit right now. And then there's a, the U.S. Uh, Innovation uh, and Competition Act, USICA, uh, which has a lot, of a lot of ways to actually help chip manufacturers, et cetera. But it hasn't been passed because there's a lot of things that have been added to it that uh, some people on both the Republican and Democratic side said, hey, this has nothing to do with competition with China, you know, so they're not voting for it. So for all of us, for American citizens, if we're looking forward and saying, hey, we would like a good economic future, having these chips available is absolutely central, both for economic vibrancy and our military capability. So. Um, what can we do to slow down China and speed up the U.S. in this very heated competition? Is there a short-term solution, Bob, or are these all long-term solutions? And I don't mean to the, to the big intractable problems, but is there something that could happen short-term that could help or fix this situation? Well, the first thing, uh, Francis, is for Congress to pass the USICA and to start letting out money, uh, we might want to work with South Korea, Samsung, and TMS, TSMC in Taiwan and see if we can incentivize them to build a fabrication facility in the United States. And I think TSMC is already thinking about building a fabrication facility in Arizona. So in the near term, kind of get that right. Get the incentives right and get the laws right. and establish criteria for example we might say if you're selling the if you're selling chips if you're a u.s company selling chips overseas you have to tell the u.s government who you're selling the chips to and then the u.s government could then say hey is this a front company for the chinese or is this another company that you know has lax um export um procedures we could do that to make sure that uh, some of the chips from the United States are not getting to China. And we could uh, think of other incentives uh, for domestic manufacturers of chips now. We make a lot of the older chips, like the seven nanometer chips and 14 nanometer chips. And those are used a lot in uh, all sorts of different electronic equipment. So we want to double down on that for sure, to at least make sure we have a good supply of that. Uh, and then we really need to focus on these high-end chips 
that are really central to the AI competition, which China is trying to win. Bob Work, great conversation as always. I really appreciate your knowledge and your insight. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Francis. You can find a link to the AI research Bob talked about in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow with a deep dive on data in the Army. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.